What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks, Scott, and welcome, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan, a drunk man in the snow. No, I'm not drunk or in the snow. That is how Guggenheim's Scott Minard explains part of the behavior of the bond market. He's out with a new paper right now. He will join us exclusively to talk about what this means and where we go under-the-radar way to play the EV craze without having to spend 80 grand on an electric car. And he's been called a serial SPAC dealmaker, a financier, a sports team owner. It's all true in the above. Bill Foley will join us to talk about his new investment, cybersecurity, plus a new segment called Show and Tell. We'd tell you about it, but we'd rather show you. And we will a bit later on in the hour. But let us kick it off and show you what's happening with your money. After the best day of the year yesterday, Dom Chu, I guess maybe taking a little bit of a breather today and well-deserved after yesterday. Sully, I'm going to show and tell you what's going on in the markets right now because I'll show you that the markets are generally flat to start the day. We're actually improving on momentum. We're moving slightly to the upside here. The Nasdaq's still underperforming, but only down by about a percent right now. We're 118 points, 13,470 the last trade. We're hovering just below the 3,900 mark in the S&P, 38.92 the last trade there. The Dow Industrial is taking a peak now in positive territory, up a whopping 15 points, though. Still, stable markets after, like you pointed out, the best day of the year so far for the stock market again in 2021. One place to keep an eye on, though, is what's happening with gold futures. They're up marginally on the day, about 74 basis points, $12.80, 17.35. At one point today, though, we were at the lowest levels going all the way back to June of last year. The gold trade has been interesting because that downtrend that you've been seeing signals perhaps that inflation is not as much of a worry despite the rise in interest rates. So a lot of folks keeping track of that gold trade. And then the stock of the day is full of action. It's being mentioned on those Internet chat boards like on Reddit, the Wall Street Bets Forum, places like that. A lot of mentions for rocket companies, ticket RKT. That stock is up 35 percent near the highs of the session so far, $32.80. That move higher in just the last three sessions is roughly 65% to the upside. Some traders note it is a highly shorted name, a lot of bets against it, which could lead to upside price momentum if those bets go against them. So keep an eye on RKT, the latest one of these stocks, to see some unusual trading activity around those Internet chat forums. Bri, I'll send things back over to you. Dom, I don't know if I can call an audible or whatever, but have you seen some of the the TV networks lately in this? Fox, FOX, up another 8% today, up 30% this year. Discovery, I kind of half-joked last week. I said, apparently TV is the new TV. Investors are loving some of these TV companies as well. Not like we're talking our book or anything. No, no, traditional media companies, traditional TV companies that have some streaming components to them. But for the longest time, it was about the Netflixes of the world. Now it's become this idea that you can have a Discovery Communications, perhaps a Disney, everybody else out there. Fox is on fire right now with regard to its stock. But just take a look at some of these names. Over the last year, Discovery is up 123 percent. 
Many of these traditional media names are catching a lot more attention. Viacom, also one that's getting some near-term positivity in terms of trader mentions and analyst mentions as well. So, again, watch those media companies, especially if they've got a new streaming strategy. Of course, Viacom and Discovery Communications, all of those types of stocks are doing very well. A lot of these have already come out with new strategies. Viacom, CBS up one and three quarters percent right now. Remember, Paramount Plus is their new streaming network being rebranded from CBS All Access. That kicks off again this month as well. Bri. Look at Dom throwing in an ad for Paramount Plus. I like it. It's just good, good media neighborly relations, Dom Chu. Yes. Thank you very much. You got it. All right. Yeah, everybody's watching, I guess, regular TV. All right. Well, despite the slight pullback in the market, overall, we're still holding some impressive gains this year in the money simply continues to pour in. In fact, in February, a record amount of cash poured into stock ETFs as investors bet on growth from vaccines and additional stimulus or see all the above. All this is prompting Bank of America to warn the level of Wall Street bullishness, though, is now getting close to a sell signal. Hmm. Joining us now with more, Nancy Davis, founder and chief investment officer at Quadratic Capital Management, and Rich Weiss, Chief Investment Officer over at Multi-Asset Strategies at American Century Investments. Rich, I don't know how that all fits on a card, but I'm happy to have you on here. Uh, Let's talk about this. You guys are starting to get a little bit macro, maybe not nervous, but do you think that that much of the gains in the near term for equities have already been made? You know, it's it's the equity market is forward looking. It is pricing in that we are going to soon uh, have herd immunity, get back to normal. And there's a huge amount of pent up demand. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily priced in. uh, It's pricing in growth. And obviously, any hiccup that we have with the vaccine being rolled out would be an issue. But I don't really think it's unwarranted necessarily. There is a lot of pent up demand. We are having huge fiscal spending. Um, I did see that Bank of America report, and I think the big difference they are missing is in 2007, interest rates were well over 5%. So comparing it to 07 to now, I don't think is really comparable because we're talking about a very, very different yield environment. Fair enough, Rich. Okay. Do you, but I guess we don't have, we have to compare something to something, right? And I guess we go back to 99 with technology and e-money, or we can go back to 07, to Nancy's point. To your point, mm-hmm. is there any historical comparison to what's going on right now? Because we do have a global pandemic, one that arguably we are hopefully coming out of, but it's still going on in much parts of the country. Yeah, it's, it's tough to look back historically and find a good comparison with a pandemic-induced recession. But w- what happened yesterday, simply the market recovering from what was what, essentially a panic attack last week in reaction to inflationary fears and the bond market move. Uh, But the markets, both bonds and stocks, tend to overshoot in both directions, right? Whereas the economy is not as bipolar. It doesn't move from freezing cold to burning hot in the blink of an eye. And right now, we are in a reflationary environment, not an inflationary environment. Last year, we had what was equivalent to an economic flat tire, right? We went basically flat in March. And there's quite a bit of room here to reflate or reinflate the economy. There's slack in the labor markets. Labor force participation rate is down. Uh, The output gap is as large, I think, as I've ever seen it. It's sort of close to historical large. It's in the trillions. And herd immunity, I I mean, even Tony the Fouch doesn't want to bet on the over-under in that one. It's 2022 at the earliest, 
before we get global herd immunity. So there's plenty of room to have some inflation with healthy economic growth here. And so we're on the reflationary trade, not the inflationary trade. Well, that's global in 2022. I'd take the, the deep under on that, by the way, just for, for the United States. Nancy, are we, okay, there are huge swaths of the American economy that are actually doing well. The New York Times had a really fascinating piece today that state budgets that were the, quote, experts said were going to be destroyed by the lockdowns are actually now flat. In fact, some states are well up in 2020 from 2019. Travel and leisure and hospitality, completely different story, still a depression in that area. My point is this. We're talking about adding nearly $2 trillion to the American economy. Will that push us over the edge on inflation? Well, the Fed, you know, to your point, Brian, they want inflation, right? Their goal is to get the economy in growth, to get the unemployment rate down. Reflation is definitely uh, the name of the game right now. But I think the big question is whether, you know, we are going to have inflationary pressures. And I don't necessarily think that would be a negative thing for equity markets. You know, quite frankly, higher 10-year yields would be a more healthy sign for markets because it would mean more yeah. banks uh, extend capital to Main Street. You, you Lenders borrow short-term, they lend long-term. So unless we have a healthy yeah. upward-sloping yield curve, we can't get capital to Main Street. So I don't think the market should be worried about higher 10-year rates. I think they should be worried about higher front-dated rates, policy rates. But this, Rich, again, to your point earlier, without getting into the science, this is not a financial crisis. Okay, this is not 2007 to 2008. It's a financial crisis if you're in transportation or uh, travel, hospitality, and leisure. Every other sector of the economy has been adding jobs. The only way the Fed can maximize employment is if they vaccinate everybody tomorrow, I assume. And I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, right? This is not a traditional financial thing where monetary or fiscal policy are going to help. Well, yeah, I, I may disagree or take the other side on that one. Fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, these are necessary uh, to, to get back just to where we were pre-pandemic. I mean, what, what were we down? About uh, 4 or 5 percent in real GDP in 2020. So it's going to take 5, 6 percent real growth this year just to get back to even. And that requires some massive fiscal stimulus to replace the lack of consumer demand we saw last year. Yet, yes, it's a close call. But that's but only in one Fed- sector of the economy, Rich. It's only travel, leisure, and hospitality. That's it. Every other sector oh, of the economy is for the is doing well. I so, so unless some of the growth the Fed sectors can give certainly me cheap have done money great. to fly, but I'm not allowed to fly because if I fly, I got to I got to live in my basement like I've been doing every week, <laughs> quarantining in my own home. That's our problem. How much do you want to get out of the house? How much do you want to go someplace different and and get out? And I think that's really that pent up growth that what you're seeing in the equity market, it's starting to price in a normalization because I want to get out of my house. I'm tired of being, you know, I can't wait to travel again, go out to restaurants again, enjoy hospitality, leisure. So all those sectors that have been underwater, the the markets are starting to price in a normalization. And that's a good thing for us all. Well, yeah, and it's a fair point, and Nancy and Rich will continue it. To be fair, normalization's a relative term. I've been to Texas, Florida, South Carolina, and other places in the last couple of months. The restaurants are crowded. My, air, my flights have been full. The airports are crowded. 
normalization, I guess, is a very localized and regionalized term. It's just hard to remember that when you live in the, the Northeast. I guess I'll see you guys at 2024 at a conference. Nancy and Rich, appreciate it. Best to you. Be safe to everybody. Thank you. Thank All you. right. So let's kind of evolve on that and get some more good news on the vaccine rollout and an historic partnership, perhaps the kind that we have not seen maybe since all the way back in World War II. Merck is teaming up with Johnson & Johnson to help with the production of Johnson & Johnson's vaccine. Meg Terrell is joining us. I can't remember the last time, Meg, two huge competitors. It's like decided we're going to work together for the good of humanity. It's a feel-good story. It is, Brian. You know, in this pandemic, we're seeing a lot of unique partnerships. Typically, when you see a big pharma company to come in to help manufacture something, it's with a little biotech. But these are two of the largest healthcare companies in the world now teaming up. Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, just talking about this uh, at the briefing just now. Here's what she said. We learned early on that they were, or not early on, but in the recent days, it's all relative, uh, that they were behind on their manufacturing capacity. And so we took steps uh, to ensure uh, we could capitalize on uh, the scientific breakthrough. So Saki's saying there that this really came together when the Biden administration came in and realized J&J was behind on its manufacturing. Now, J&J has emphasized it's always going to meet uh, that target of 100 million doses delivered by the end of June and now it plans to deliver 20 million by the end of March. We don't have details on whether that will speed this up, and we expect that potentially later today from President Biden. But the details we do have is that Merck will dedicate two U.S. facilities, we know this from Washington Post reporting, uh, to both filling the vials with the vaccine and also making the vaccine itself. Now, it could take several months to get these facilities online. The Post reporting this could double output of the J&J vaccine. But Brian, you know, a lot of people in that briefing pressing Saki on what this will mean in terms of the number of vaccine doses that will be produced. Um, will it increase the ultimate number to more than a billion? We don't know yet. Merck giving a statement earlier saying yeah. that it remains steadfast in their commitment to contribute to the global response to the pandemic and to preparing to address future pandemics. We expect to hear more from all of these players later today when President Biden talks about this in more detail, Brian. Yeah, and that's, you know, listen, to your point yesterday, Meg, we will be fully vaccinated here probably by summer, at least we'll have enough doses. This is a global problem to Rich Weiss's point, you know, maybe 2022 for the world next year. So an important part of getting this out for everybody else, not just the United States. Meg Terrell, thank you as always. Thanks. All right, On Deck, a big exclusive with one of the biggest names in investing. I mean, literally, Guggenheim Scott Minard on the recent bond blowout and why the markets, he says, are acting like a drunk man in the snow. And are you looking to get into the electric vehicle craze, but, you know, don't have 80 grand sitting around to buy an electric car? And maybe you think Tesla stock is overvalued? Don't worry. We've got an under-the-radar name that is outside the industry, but connected and been soaring and it's up 50% this year. Who is that mystery chart? We'll let you know. We're back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. 
The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. All right, welcome back. As promised before the break, Morgan Stanley eyeing an under-the-radar electric vehicle play, initiating coverage of MP materials with a buy rating. MP is the only major U.S. miner rare earth materials that are used to make magnets that go into 90% of our electric vehicles. The stock is up about 7% today, and if you look at the run it's had during the past six months, up about 240%. Now, this is where you roll the video, guys, of me at their mine. In Mountain Pass, California, if you remember two years ago, we were out there when they were still a private company. This accounts for most of the rare earth material mined in the United States. Again, cue the video. Morgan Stanley's Carlos de Alba joining us now by phone to make the case for MP. Uh, Carlos, one of the few companies where I actually could say I've been to their only asset, been out there on the Nevada state line with Jim Latinsky and some of his team, certainly on MP materials, a lot of competition about Chinese competition, how they have to send it there to process large parts of it. What makes you bullish on the MP story? Yeah, definitely, Brian. A very exciting um, asset that they have, an opportunity that they are exploiting. Uh, What what makes us... um be positive on MP materials is is the outlook, the great outlook that we see for demand in uh, in their key product, which is rare earths that go into the magnet that power electric vehicles and wind turbines. And you know, this is uh, the future. We see a significant growth in the use of these motors to electrific for the electrification trends that we are experiencing right now, and and that is what's going to drive demand for MP products, and we think is going to boost the price of the metals they produce. Yeah, and we're going to say words like neodymium and praseodymium without getting into the exact elements, of course, because there's a lot of things that these go into. What are their key product markets going to be, Carlos? Yeah, there, there are two particular uh, key markets for them uh, and for the NDR, uh, in the, in the, in the PR, which are the, the easiest way to pronounce the elements that they produce. One of those is electric vehicles, uh, and the second is wind to- turbines. Uh, when you looked at you know, the, the transitional transformation that we're experiencing today in, in the auto sector, uh, it is going to be uh, very important for rare earths uh, as they consume around 2.8 kilograms per electric vehicle, and that compares with less than one kilogram, around 0.8 kilograms per uh, current um, you know, in, in, in the, uh, combustion engine uh, car that we, that we drive today. And when you looked at the wind turbines, um, those that are offshore are the ones that really will drive the demand for uh, the type of magnets that use the products that MP produces. Uh, those consume around 650 kilograms of permanent magnets per megawatt of capacity versus the between 80 to 160 kilograms per megawatt that are used in the geared turbines that we, yeah. use, that we use today. Carlos de Alba with a $57 price target, so still sees about 10-plus percent of upside there in MP materials. Carlos, a pleasure to get you on the program. Thank you very much. 
Thank you very much, Ryan. All right, coming up when The Exchange rolls on, you're welcome. Investing giant Scott Minard of Guggenheim joins us exclusively. His take on the recent bond volatility and what the potential new stimulus plan might mean for rates and your investments. And should you get ready for a big boom in oil and gas deals? And if so, where? The head of energy investment banking for Jefferies with a rare TV interview here exclusively next. Stick around. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, welcome back. Hope you're having a great day wherever you might be, everybody. Here's how the markets and your money look right now. And we're up a little bit on the Dow, but we're coming off the best day of the year, best day in a long time yesterday. So what can you expect? We're seeing the Dow up 30 points right now. The NASDAQ giving back a little bit of gain yesterday off about three-tenths of 1%. For the sectors, it is oil and gas once again leading the markets. We are seeing sort of this oil and gas boom this year. And look at some of these names. you got energy up Quarter 1%. The materials, we just talked about one of those companies, up more than 1%. Real estate and utilities are some of the biggest laggards right now. Those are interest rate sensitive. Remember, we'll talk about rates in a bit, but those are interest rate sensitive. All right, now to three big money single stock stories. Stock number one, TripAdvisor. Sharply higher on an upgrade to buy from neutral over at Citigroup. The bank is bullish on the company's new subscription product that is currently being tested. If you're curious, $99 per year. Stock number two is Square. It is up on news. It has begun operations for its in-house bank called Square Financial Services. The bank will offer business loans to Square sellers. And stock number three is Lemonade. It's an online insurance company. It's also a drink. The company posting a slightly smaller than expected loss and better than expected revenue, but disappointing guidance for the current quarter, sending that stock sharply lower. Investors have apparently soured on the stock. P.S. Invest Lemonade CEO will be on today at three o'clock on the closing bell. Now let's step out of the world of money and business. Go to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Brian. Hello, everyone. Let's start in California, where 15 people have been killed in a major highway crash. It happened about 100 miles east of San Diego. Hospital officials say that most died at the crash site. We believe there was 27 passengers in this SUV that um, struck a semi-truck full of gravel. 14 were dead on the scene. Three of them were flown out from the scene. Seven patients transported to El Centro Regional Medical Center, where unfortunately one of those has died since arrival. And get the latest developments on this accident tonight on the News with Shepard Smith at 7 p.m. Eastern. The Supreme Court appears likely to uphold new voting restrictions in Arizona. Such a decision could make it harder to challenge other voting measures that Republicans have proposed since last year's election. And overseas, Russia says that it will respond in kind to new U.S. sanctions over the treatment and imprisonment of critic Alexei Navalny. Russia's foreign minister calls the sanctions unjustified. You are up to date. Brian, I'll send it back to you.
Oh, what a terrible story on that a wreck. Rahel Solomon, thank you very much. All right, coming up, another SPAC making its debut today, backed by some big-time heavyweights in the finance world, including financier and sports owner Bill Foley. We'll speak with him about why he's betting on cybersecurity. And it's time for what we're now going to call show and tell. We show the chart and then tell you the story. Today's chart is Target. Stock giving up earlier gains following comments by management. Supply chain issues could pressure margins this year. Stock down 5%. The retailer delivering a stellar fourth quarter, boosted by a surge of post-holiday shoppers. Here's CEO Brian Cornell on Squawk Box. January was a really surprising month for me. Um, I think if I do this for another 20 years, we're unlikely to see January comps grow at a rate of over 30%. We saw a surge in traffic in our stores. We saw growth across all of our categories. Well, this year is quickly becoming the year of the special purpose acquisition company, the SPAC, with new data from Goldman Sachs showing 175 of these blank check companies have raised $56 billion this year alone, and it's only March 2nd. That's an average of $1.5 billion per trading day. Now, one of the latest companies to take this route is Complex, a risk analytics platform which is merging with a blank check company founded by the CEO of Casper. The deal values the company at nearly $1.5 billion, Counts Bill Foley as the lead investor on their past funding as well. Joining us now is Jason Crabtree, CEO of Complex and Bill Foley, serial SPAC dealmaker, chairman of Can-A Holdings with investments in software, mortgage analytics, companies, sports teams, and more. It's a real pleasure to have you both on uh, right now. And by the way, I've got something special to show you at the end. You're both West Point guys. Jason, let's start with you. Okay, cybersecurity, solar winds hack. The more we learn about it, the more terrifying it is. Literally, bad guys in the systems for months undetected. How much interest are you seeing in cybersecurity right now? Yeah, I think when you look at Complex, Complex is one of the most advanced companies in the world at lateral movement and privilege escalation. And that's actually the centerpiece of the story at SolarWinds. It was attacks against Active Directory that aren't detected by traditional security solutions. And we do this for some of the world's largest companies, and we're very excited as part of this transaction to not just do it in the corporate world, but also to be able to do it back in the government and national security space. Yeah, and looking at some of your product portfolios, Jason, I also saw uh, finance, and I'm thinking to myself, are you trying to kind of go after a little piece of the Bloomberg empire as far as their computer terminal? Well, I think when you think about the future of risk, Everyone wants to understand how risk and data are colliding to make better decisions. And cybersecurity is one of the most real-time risks. It's one of the most challenging risks. And Complex has been building a platform that can take vast volumes of information, integrate them together, and use that to support better risk-weighted decision-making, especially around some of these issues like cybersecurity, so you can be more quantitative. We think that's the future of risk. It's the future of cyber insurance, and it's the future of the insurance markets. All right, Bill, um, you, and I mean this with respect. You are one of the more complex, see what I did there, business guys out there. Fidelity National Financial, Can-A Holdings, Dun & Bradstreet, Black Knight, Morgan. I mean, you are in so many different businesses, the Golden Knights hockey team. Why this deal? Why now? And do you worry the SPAC market's getting a little overcooked? Well, this deal at this time is really based upon Jason and his team that he has with him. 
Uh, we invested in Complex uh, about two and a half, two and a half, two and a half years ago, two years and three months ago, and we did it because we uh, had a breach of one of my companies, a small breach of one of my private companies. And Jason came in and his team, they they determined how the breach happened, they fixed it, and uh, they're still we were still working with them. And I, I was really impressed with his team and the way they. The way they do business and uh, how sophisticated they are—you just, you just heard it. I mean, it's for layman. What he's talking about is really difficult to understand. As far as the SPAC market goes, you know, I do get concerned that that we have a lot of SPACs being formed, and um, what kind of and the types of businesses that they're taking public are, are they really the appropriate type of business to go public at this time? But with our SPACs, we try and. We always invest in real companies with real revenue and real EBITDA, so we'll continue to do that. And it's a, it's a, the SPAC is a great alternative to the IPO market. Um, but um, I think as as many as you and many others feel, well, Bill, Bill, let me jump in on that. Why, why is it such an alternative for the IPO? I mean, the IPO market was, the IPO process has been sort of the same, minus a Dutch auction here or there, the way Google did it, and a few others for for decades. Is the is the is the traditional IPO now dead? Are our investment bankers going to be looking for work? <laughs> well, they always seem to have plenty of work to do. But it, the SPAC is really an alternative to the alternative to the IPO process. The IPO process is long and drawn out. We took Dun and Bradstreet uh, public last uh, last summer. We had to, we worked on that transaction for about eight eight and a half months. And then by the time you're done, at the end of the day, you're subject to the vagaries of the market. Is the market going to accept an IPO at that time? Whereas the, the SPAC transaction, you raise the money, it goes into trust, you find a company that, you, that you're interested in acquiring, and you then close that transaction. And it's much more abbreviated. It's, and also, it's a way for a financial sponsor or for a corporation to monetize their investment uh, fully or partially. And in our case, as a pay safe and a light, it's partial monetization by Blackstone. But there still are partners going forward. So I, it's just a simple way to to execute uh, a public a public markets transaction. I mean, but I guess what I'm trying to understand, Bill, is these kind of came out of the blue. I mean, they've been around. I get it, but they kind of the pace of them in the last six months has been unprecedented. You heard the numbers, you probably know them by heart anyway, when we're coming in. I mean, my, my take as somebody who's been doing this for 26 years is, are there that many good companies? You found a good company, it sounds like, in complex, but are there that many good companies out there to buy? Because if there were, why wouldn't we have had this before? What changed? Is it the pandemic? Is it the Fed policy? I think it really was the pandemic. The pandemic shut down the public the, the public markets for a period of time, and that's when we did our first two uh, first two SPACs. Well, it was last uh, last May and last June, and then in August. and uh, And the pandemic made it possible to do Zoom calls, have Zoom calls, contact your investors, take it public, and then start finding companies and do your search. So. Um, but I do worry that we yeah. have a lot of SPACs now, a lot of SPACs, and uh, and are they are they taking the right companies public? That, that's that's a concern. Well, 
Well, listen, guys, time will tell. Jason and Bill, I want to show you something because you're both West Point grads. Even though my father was 10 years Navy, I gave a speech at West Point a number of years ago, and they gave me this. And it's, it's like, super cool. I have it in my office studio right here. So uh, shout out to all the uh, cadets at West Point. I don't know if you guys can see that. Don't get two cadets on at the same time, usually. There you go. Guys, thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thanks. Great to be with you. All right, love this thing. By the way, still go Navy. All right, coming up, a big interview with a big name in global markets. I'm going to set this down. Why Guggenheim Scott Minor says parts the bond market are acting like a drunk man in the snow. He's here exclusively. Next. All right, call it the taper tantrum, the bond blow up, yield curve madness, whatever you want to call what happened last week, just don't call it insignificant. The sharp moving yield slamming stocks for a few days and got a lot of people suddenly very nervous about inflation risks and the markets in general. And with the possibility of nearly $2 trillion in stimulus coming onto already been what's put in, combined with what appears to be a pretty sharp economic recovery starting to take place in large parts of the, the country, is inflation and maybe a sinking U.S. dollar a real possibility? Joining us now for a The Exchange exclusive is Scott Miner, Chief Global Investment Officer at Guggenheim Partners. He has just put out a new paper moments ago called A Drunk Man in the Snow, and it's worth a definite read. Scott, we're, we're uh, pleased to have you on. Uh, good to chat with you again. You write the foregone conclusion is that rates have bottomed out. They're going higher for years. That's that. You beg to differ. Tell us why and what you see happening. Sure, Brian. I mean, first off, I got to tell you that uh, I have heard so many times that we have reached the low in interest rates ever since the 1980s. that uh, you know every down cycle is the end of the bull market, but uh, you know the the work that we've done that is based on uh, uh, the work of Eugene Fama uh, for his uh, uh, work in securities prices and the uh, the follower Random Walk, which is the drunk in the snow, uh, is that uh, we have yet to see a reversal in the trend that has been in place since the early 1980s. And so it has been a fool's game so far to every time we make a new low in rates to predict the end of the bull market. And uh, until the market tells me something different, uh, I'm not really in a hurry to join the crowd. Uh, And, Brian, there's a lot of good reasons um, to believe that we we haven't reached the end. Uh, One is um, the prospects that uh, as the U.S. Treasury keeps spending all of its cash, it's driving interest rates lower, uh, even though it's stimulating the economy, uh, because uh, as the cash gets into the economy, people are investing it in in bonds and stocks. Uh, The other thing is, and I thought CNBC did an excellent story yesterday on this, um, is that uh, there's now discussion about the idea of another operation twist where the Federal Reserve, because interest rates are getting so low in the front end of the curve and could go negative, uh, that uh, they'll sell sell their short-duration assets like Treasury bills and start buying longer maturity assets that would drive rates down. You know, and that's that, that's the part of the story, I think, that our audience may not get because they think, oh, you're talking about getting a stimulus check and buying GameStop. <laughs> what you're, that's not what you're saying. What you're saying is that surveys show a huge percentage of the stimulus is going to be saved or paid off debt. Even putting something into your checking or savings account 
is a government transaction in a sense, right? Very short-term T-bills. There is a financial knock-on effect, even from doing something as benign as that with the stimulus checks. Well, that, that's right. And that's kind of what I get into in the paper is you've got to get into this arcane world of monetary policy uh, and how it all works at the Federal Reserve. But the U.S. Treasury keeps its checking account, if you will, with the Federal Reserve. When they spend money out of that account, um, it goes into the economy. And in this case, it's going out in the form of largely in the form of checks to individuals. Well, our experience is showing us that a lot of these checks are going to people that really don't need the money uh, and they're saving it. And so that money either gets deposited in the bank, uh, which means the bank has to go buy some sort of short maturity or, uh, um, you know, a low risk security like treasury bills or treasury notes or, you know, asset backed securities or CLOs or whatever, um, or uh, the market or the, the, the person uh, invest the mark the money directly into the market, and that's what we're starting to see with um, you know asset valuations is uh, as the government keeps putting this money into the economy, um, it's unlike what we went through in the prior QE experience. Uh, we're actually uh, you know increasing the amount of dollars in people's bank accounts, and that's not what we did back in two thousand and nine and two thousand and ten. So. Y- you're, and we're talking about the sort of this domino effect that it is sort of the, the weeds of monetary policy. The bottom line is that money, which is largely being paid out of the Treasury, increasing money supply, potentially devaluing the dollar. I guess we can get into that. But you, do you believe, are you saying that 10-year yields will go back below 1%, Scott? Uh, I, I believe so. Our work shows that as long as this trend uh, stays in place, which, uh, it, as I said, it hasn't been violated yet in 35 years. Uh, you know, the models tell us that we're going to have a 10-year yield that's negative. Uh, the, the mean expectation is for it to be about a negative uh, half of 1%. Uh, could be lower. Uh, but uh, uh, whether, you know, it's, it's negative rates or just rates, uh, you know, like uh, which are barely positive, uh, you know, I think that uh, over the course of the next 18 months, uh, you know, we should expect to see a high likelihood that we end up with significantly lower long-term rates than we have today. I don't think many people are saying that, Scott. I mean, there's a few of you out on the West Coast. Of course, you got your own special water out there, I guess, because you guys have been <laughs> right. But the bond market, <laughs> that West Coast bond thing definitely has its own unique views. By the way, you probably made a lot of potential home buyers or home refinancers happy. Uh, I want to read something from your paper. And by the way, it's very good. And tell us why we care. If you're not a financial professional, you're sort of around the margins of the markets. This is meaning the money coming out of Treasury. This is causing M2 money supply to grow and soar at a rate of 25% over the past 12 months, more than five times the average annual growth rate going back to 1960. So there you got 60 plus years of history, but why do we care? What does that growth in money supply do to things like equities and the dollar? Right. Well, I mean, I go back to, uh, you know, I, I talked about Eugene Fama. Uh, Milton Friedman, uh, who won the Nobel Prize from his work in monetary economics, basically, you know, 
demonstrated that there is a tight link between M2 and uh, economic activity. And so, uh, of course, you know, everybody's familiar with the idea that money growth will create inflation. And, and Friedman said that. He said that, uh, you know, uh, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. But he also said immediately after that, subject to long and variable lags. And so um, it, ultimately, this is inflationary. And that's, you know, a lot of people are running around now talking about inflation. But, Brian, when you look at the, the uh, tips market, uh, you know, the, the uh, inflation-protected securities by the U.S. Treasury, uh, we're seeing real rates go up. So we're not seeing a rise in inflationary expectation. We're seeing a rise in real interest rates. Uh, a rise in real interest rates would be associated in the near term uh, with uh, an appreciation in the U.S. dollar. Now, you might say, okay, wait a minute, Scott, 25% year-over-year money growth. Uh, you know, we think the economy this year could grow at 8%. Inflation could get around 2%. Where's the other 15% go? And uh, that, there's another mm -hmm. concept, which is called the Marshallian K. And, and what uh, that theory states is that if the money doesn't go, doesn't turn into economic growth, if the money doesn't turn into inflation immediately, then what it does is it dries up the price of assets. And anecdotally, we look around and we see the stock market uh, going up. We see uh, real estate prices yep. and homes going up. You know, it, it's, um, it, it's playing out as exactly the way the academics would tell yep. us it would. Well, Scott, listen, I'd love to talk more about it. And guess what? We will. So what I'm going to ask you to do is sit tight for about 12 minutes, because, folks, right after our TV conversation, Scott Miner, thank you, by the way, we're going to do a second part to this. It's going to be exclusively over on CNBC.com slash pro later on this afternoon. We'll continue this idea of asset inflation with Scott, maybe talk about cryptos as well. So go to CNBC.com slash pro. But later on, I'm going to record that interview with Scott right after this show is over. You won't want to miss it. All right. Up next. How's the deal pipeline for pipelines ahead of Jeffrey's Energy Investment Banking in a rare TV interview next? And don't forget, if you have not, download the CNBC app today. All right, welcome back. Crude oil trying to break a two-day losing streak after some bullish comments from the Saudi Aramco chief, Amin Nasser, saying at the Zero Week Energy Summit that he expects oil output to hit pre-pandemic levels of about 99 million barrels a day by next year as global demand recovers. Our next guest is speaking at the same conference tomorrow, virtually, of course, and says the rebound for crude has him seeing some green shoots in the M&A market, and he should know He's been the lead advisor on more than $200 billion in deals over his career. For more, let's bring in Pete Bowden. He is Global Head of Energy and Power Investment Banking at Jefferies. In a rare TV interview, Pete, it's great to have you on during this zero week, although next year I look forward to seeing everybody certainly in person. Uh, as I asked going into the break, how's the, how's the pipeline for, for deals, perhaps pipeline deals, which is or was your specialty? Yeah, it's definitely getting better, Brian. Um, part of that is obvious. $60 oil is better for deal-making than, than $40 oil. But part of it's more subtle in that we're seeing the emergence of a, of a few new trends. Uh, first among those is the perception that uh, COVID is abating, which should be a hugely positive catalyst on the demand side. 
Uh, the second is the impact of the Biden administration's initial changes in, in energy policy, particularly as relates to drilling on federal land, which could significantly curtail domestic production. And then third, uh, we're seeing you know a very real uh, secular trend towards ESG um, you know focused investing. If, if you take all of that together, it should mean that existing infrastructure and existing production is more valuable. You're going to have you know more demand, less supply, and, and a transition to alternative energy that, in our view, is going to be slower than most people think. And has that been part of the thesis as to why some of these names have now some of them have been heavily shorted? Balance sheets are disaster. That's a special situation. I get it, Pete. But it's not just the price of oil going up. It sounds like it's also scarcity of new supply. And when I say supply, I mean companies and stocks, because to your point, it's going to be a lot easier to buy something nowadays than to try to build something. Correct. A massive amount of capital has been sucked out of this industry. And, and in that sense, oil and gas, Brian, tends to be you know, self-correcting. Uh, if, if you starve it, prices go higher. I think relative to the, the public energy companies, most of them, in our view, are trading below intrinsic value. I think there are a, a few uh, reasons for that. You know, first, whether we want to admit it or not, this industry has destroyed a lot of capital over the last uh, price cycle. Uh, the second, um, you know, is that that frankly, with investors making so much money in in other sectors like technology and healthcare, the buy side has lost energy, uh, lost interest in trying to figure out energy. And then um, I also think, you know, with increasing concern uh, over climate change, we've had the tobaccoification of, of oil and gas with the obvious difference that nobody needs to smoke cigarettes, but everybody needs to heat their homes, uh, use household goods that have, been hit, you know, that have been created with the help of the petrochemical industry and when, when COVID uh, needs to travel. Yeah, we'll wrap it there. And I know you're in Houston. I was just there last week, Pete, following the back of the power loss. And everybody I talked to is like, we need more natural gas because wind and solar are great. But if they're not turning, we need something to do it. It wasn't the problem. I'm just saying if, if, if things go down, you need everything to back it back up. Pete Bowden and Jeffries, real pleasure to get you on CNBC, Pete. Thank you very much. Do appreciate it. Good to be with you, Brian. Thanks. All right, take care. And speaking of all this, this Thursday, we're going to be speaking with the CEO of Occidental Petroleum about how the company is trying to innovate for a more sustainable future, a maybe net carbon neutral barrel of oil. Sounds weird, but we're going to talk about it, plus a conversation with former Secretary of State and now Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry, all part of CNBC's Evolve live stream, 3 p.m. Eastern. Register now, cnbcevents.com slash Evolve live stream. We will see you there on Thursday. Well, that does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.